and it's good to be reminded you are greater than those troubles. You are sovereign over those troubles. God, I pray this morning that as we come to your word, that we would be reminded of your glory and that it would produce in us worship and that that worship would be sweet and that it would permeate everything that La Sierra Baptist Church does. God, I pray your blessing on this church. I pray your blessing on these people. And God, I'm confident in praying this because I know it's what you want. You desire, God, such great things for your people in Christ for their love and for their joy and for their hope and for their fruitfulness and their faithfulness. So God, I pray for these things. I preach for these things. And I ask that you would accomplish these things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope you won't be bothered. I've been very graciously offered some water, but I hope you won't find it too informal that I brought my coffee up with me this morning. Perhaps I have some other coffee drinkers in here. Pastor Robert and I were talking about the fact that despite all we share in common, we do not share in common a love for coffee, but I am a coffee drinker, and I happen to have had a late flight coming in last night, so I'm, I'm going to bring up my coffee with me, if that's okay. It's great to be back at La Sierra Baptist Church. Um, I've been looking forward to being here and to, bringing, to bring God's Word um, to preach. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. That was sweet. That was sweet. Um, That was good stuff. And I appreciate the diligence and the thoughtfulness that went behind that worship. Well, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. I don't expect you to remember this, but last time I was here, I preached out of the Psalms. I preached Psalm 131. I don't normally go around to churches just preaching the Psalms. It just happens to be the way God has sovereignly ordained what's on my heart as I've prepared to preach here. So I am going to be preaching out of Psalm chapter 8, and I'm using the ESV Bible, whatever version you have. I'd invite you to follow along with me as I read. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 starts out saying to the choir master according to... Um, to the Gertha Psalm of David. And I'll begin reading, and we're going to read all the way, all nine verses. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Title for my sermon this morning is Instructions for Worship. Instructions for Worship. Now I'll start this morning with a confession. I like to cook. 
But I have a bad habit of thinking I don't need instructions when in fact I do. I'll get an idea to cook something, I'll look up a recipe, I'll go buy what I need, I'll even print up the instructions, and then I'll set them on the counter and completely forgot that there were instructions, and I will make a hot mess of whatever I'm trying to cook. I think the Food Channel has ruined all of us. We all think that we're Martha Stewart or whatever. Well, our passage this morning is about worship, and the point of the passage is to give us instructions in worship. So that's the title of my sermon, Instructions in Worship. Now, you might think that sounds odd to you, that we would need instructions in worship. But in fact, worship comes naturally to Christians, but that doesn't mean we don't need instructions. Worship does in some way come naturally to us. When we are born again, it is the proper response to the saving work of God to worship. So in one sense, worship comes naturally, but in another sense, we need instruction. And I'll make a parallel example here with prayer. When we are saved, prayer comes naturally. We want to talk to God. Matter of fact, Your salvation started with a prayer where you prayed and responded to God in faith to the work that he was doing in your heart in the proclamation of the gospel. And yet, even though prayer comes naturally, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And so worship comes naturally, in a sense, and yet we also need instructions in worship. Well, another issue why instructions in worship might fall upon your ear oddly is because we tend to think of worship as something that is very emotive. And so when I say worship, you might think of the worship time. And you might be thinking, dude, I don't need instructions in worship. I've been going to church my whole life. I know what to do. You come in, you get a bulletin, you sit down, you sing whatever the worship leader says, you open your Bible, you listen to a sermon, you learn some things, you go home and try to apply it. I get it. But worship is more than that ritual, although the ritual is part of worship, worship is more than that. It's more than the emotions we have when we're driving in our car and our favorite worship song comes on the playlist or the shuffle or the radio, and you're filled with that emotion You know that emotion that comes to you sometimes when you're listening to a worship song? That is part of worship. But worship is more than that. Or maybe if you've ever gone to a Christian conference and you go to your favorite Christian conference and your favorite Christian worship band is on stage and they lower the lights and you're drawn into an environment that feels very unique and very intimate and you have that moment of like feeling like you are in the presence of God And that can be a part of worship. And I don't want to undermine that. But worship is more than that. It's more than being here from 10.30 to 11.30. It's more than the program. It's more than the song. It's more than the band. It's more than the conference. Worship is what we are saved to do. Worship is the goal of life. I was in your fellowship hall, which, by the way, looks really good. And I noticed on the wall you have 1 Corinthians 10.31. I believe I saw that. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. 
So worship is life. Worship is what we are saved for. It is the goal, the purpose, the point of your existence on earth. I've got news for you. I know why you're alive today. I know why you didn't die in your sleep. I know why you are alive at 11 a.m. on this particular Sunday morning, November 11th, I think. is because God intends for you to worship Him today. That's the point. Well, let me give us a, a, a definition of worship, and I'm taking this from John Piper. And there are a lot of good definitions of worship. So if you've happened to latch on to a different one, that's fine. John Piper refers to worship as strong affections for God rooted in the truth of Scripture. Strong affections for God rooted in the truth of Scripture. And so when we think of life as worship, we're thinking about being in your cubicle at work with strong affections for God rooted in worship. Or if you're staying at home with a baby changing diapers, you are changing diapers with strong affections for God rooted in Scripture. Or if you are changing pipes, or if you are serving a customer or making a sales call, whatever you do, strong affections for God rooted in the truth of Scripture. And that in some sense comes naturally, but in another sense, we need instruction. Because if you're like me, I fail a lot in the worship. I fail a lot. There are days when I lay down in bed and I have this thought, I didn't worship very well today. I rushed through my Bible time. Maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't ha even have the Bible time. My prayers were cold. My affections were cold. It was a day filled with temptation or struggle or doubt or fear or whatever. And you just have this feeling like, man, I failed in my purpose in life today because I really didn't do a whole lot of worship. Well, I hope, brothers and sisters, that this passage sends you out today with something in mind that you can think through this work for the simple goal of worshiping better this week. That's my goal. And I hope that is accomplished. So, that's the introduction. The outline is fairly simple. I'm going to walk us through... Uh, Four things, four steps, if you will, four instructions in worship. And the first is celebrate God's majesty. Celebrate God's majesty. Look in the text. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes and still the enemy of your avenging. God, you are majestic. David says, you exist to worship, and worship starts with celebrating God's majesty. Celebrate. We as Christians aren't very good at celebrating. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I want to do better at celebrating. I want to celebrate what God's doing in my family. I want to celebrate answers to prayers and I want to celebrate anniversaries. I want to celebrate people that are walking victorious in sobriety. I want to celebrate what God is doing more. But all of that funnels from the ultimate celebration. The party of the galaxy for eternity centers on who God is. 
And so David says, want to worship? Learn to celebrate God's majesty. He starts and ends, if you look at verse 9, he ends, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You might think, well, David must have wanted to round this off and he couldn't think of something else to say, so he just repeated. No, this is very intentional. It is the structure of the psalm to start and end with a celebration of the majesty of God's glory because that is the whole of worship. God is the beginning and the end of worship. You never move on or you never grow out of the worship and the awe and the wonder and just who it is God is. And so David says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Now in the Hebrew, it's not quite, Oh, Lord, our Lord. The Jews came to prohibit pronouncing the name of Yahweh. And that was a tradition. That's, that's not instructed in Scripture. They just, they just came to not say that word, Yahweh or Jehovah. But in the Hebrew, it's actually, O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our Adonai. And then over time, it became, O Lord, our Lord. And also, for the sake of that great uh, worship song, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. That wouldn't sing quite as easily with, O Yahweh, our Adonai. But that's what it is in the Hebrew. O Yahweh, this personal name for God. This isn't just any old God. This isn't just a tribal deity. This isn't some religious fiction. This is the real, live, living, miracle-working God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is Yahweh, our Adonai, our Lord. You might remember in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses, God has some instructions for Moses. Moses is to lead God's people and to give them the law. And of course, as Moses is getting the law, the people of Israel are throwing an idolatrous debauch party. And Moses says, listen, listen if I'm going to do this, you've you got to reveal yourself to me. You've got to show me your glory. So Moses says, God, I'll be your guy. I'll do this, but I need to see your glory. And you remember what God says in Exodus 33 and 34? God says, Moses, you don't want, you don't want me to do that. Because no man can see my face and live. And so God says, listen, here's a rock. I want you to stand on that rock. And when Moses stands on the rock with the Ten Commandments, there's a lot there. I mean, that would be a fun sermon. He's on the rock with the commands of God. And in that context, God's glory is revealed. And God's glory passes through like a cloud. But it says the Lord stood with Moses. So who do you think that was standing in a glory cloud? Standing. I mean, think of the transfiguration. I think this is a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus. But his face is veiled in the cloud. And as the cloud passes by, the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's our God. Yahweh. Adonai, majestic. David says God's name is so majestic that the earth cannot contain it. The earth cannot contain it. David's son Solomon would echo this sentiment in 1 Kings 8 when he dedicated the temple 
So David's son Solomon builds a house for God. You remember that, called the temple. And when he builds the temple and he dedicates the temple, Solomon maybe has learned from his father David something in this regard. And this is what he says at the dedication. Solomon says, The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple. In other words, if you want to worship, celebrate God's majesty, and think for a moment that the universe cannot contain the glory of the presence of the majesty of God. The universe cannot contain it. And so this word majesty refers to God's sovereignty, His glory that is displayed in all creation. You know, for us, when we hear the word majesty, you might think of like The King and I or some movie you've seen, Your Majesty. You're usually talking about a king, someone with some power. And David is saying, God, you are the king of the universe and you possess all power. God's name is a symbol of his being, his sovereignty. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And so what David does in the psalm is to make the point, David says, if you're reading this and you don't quite understand how majestic God is, David's going to help us. And he's going to take us on a tour. He's going to take us on a tour of the universe. He's going to take us on a tour of the universe. And he starts by saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, if you can imagine having the ability to fly like Superman over the earth, just fly fast around the world, you would fly over the oceans, God's glory. You'd fly over the mountains, God's glory. Over the desert, God's glory. The forest, God's glory is there. You'd zip up to the North Pole. You'd see the glaciers, God's glory is there. You'd go through the canyons, God's glory is there. You could go around the world in your mind. You can vision just any beautiful landscape, David's saying, God's glory is there, and yet the earth cannot contain it. It's greater than that. And you think, David, that's awesome. He says, no, no, we're going to go into outer space. Now we're going to go into outer space. How majestic is your name in all the earth? You have set your glory above the heavens. And so now, fasten your seatbelt. David's going to rocket us into the galaxies. And if you can imagine traveling at light speed, just up out of our atmosphere and past the moon and past the planets of our solar system, David's going to take us to the farthest galaxies. He's going to go take us to places man has never seen, past the billions and billions of stars. And if you can imagine just looking back at all of the galaxies, God's glory is revealed, and yet God's glory is bigger. That cannot contain God's glory. God's glory is amazing. His majesty is amazing. There are things God has created in outer space I will ever see, and yet God created it for His own pleasure. Well, then David's going to zoom us back to Earth now, so fasten your seatbelt. From the outer limits of the galaxy back to planet Earth, David says, now let's consider a child. God's glory is there around the Earth. 
there in the mountains and the forest. It's way out in the farthest galaxies. But then you zoom back to Earth and you consider a little baby, a child, a child that's just taught Jesus loves you and believes that and worships. Or picture someone weak or insignificant or someone without any power or really any recognition, someone that you would consider to be weak. And David says, God's glory is revealed out of the mouths of babes. The earth in the mountains and the beauty and the stars and the galaxy is revealed, but God's glory is also revealed in children. In children. What David's doing for us is he's setting side by side general and special revelation. General revelation is the fact that nature reveals the glory of the Lord. Romans 1 says that what is known about God is evident to people, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's not a lack of evidence for God's existence. We just like our sin and don't particularly want Him to be our Yahweh at night. Our Lord, our Lord. And so David says, consider for a moment the fact that all of the universe declares the glory of God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And yet, special revelation, special revelation is God's self-revealing Himself through His Spirit in His Word when someone comes to faith in Jesus. So think of His special revelation as what is revealed in Scripture and what came alive in you by the Spirit when you were born again. That's some special work of God in salvation. And that's part of God's revelation. But so is all of nature. And these two things, side by side, David says, God's glory is majestic. And if you want to worship, you have got to spend some time celebrating the glory of God, the uncontainable glory of God. The God who reveals Himself to children and the weak and the discouraged, and the people that are out of hope, God says, I will have mercy on them out of babes, out of weak people who put their faith in me. The majesty of God is on display, yes, in the mountains, but it is most on display in the lives of people he saves. That's what David's getting us to see. Now you might know Jesus quotes Psalm 8 to the religious leaders. Jesus refers to the little ones who trust in Him. He quotes Psalm 8, and by, by implication, Jesus is saying, if you trust in Me, you're like one of My little ones. You're now a little one, a child of God, if you trust in Me. And if you don't, He's saying to the religious leaders, out of the mouths of babes, they're the babes, they're the children, they're the ones displaying My glory, and to the religious leaders who know this passage, he's saying, you are then the enemy and the avenger. You are on the side of Satan. So this is serious business. Celebrate God's majesty. Celebrate God's glory. Listen, I don't know all that's wrong in your life this morning. I don't presume to know all the challenges and all the struggles you're facing. But I know it's thick because you're human and we live in a fallen world. 
But I, I know this, brothers and sisters, if you forget everything else I say this morning, and you will just spend some time this week celebrating who God is in what you see and in what you read, and you just spend some time celebrating for all that's wrong, God is right and holy and glorious. What will come out of your heart is strong affections rooted in the Scripture. Worship. So celebrate. Number two, ponder your insignificance. Now you're thinking, oh, I like that first point. I don't like the second point so much. Ponder my insignificance. What? Well, notice what he says in verse 3. When I looked at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When I look at your heavens. Now we're back on planet Earth, feet firmly established on the ground, and we're looking up at the stars. And David, David invites us to consider the stars. He invites us to look up and imagine, if you will, the darkest sky with the brightest stars on a moonless night when you're far from the city lights, when you are seeing the 100 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy and the 100 billion galaxies, whatever that is times that, that's a lot of stars. David's looking up at these stars and he's saying, you know, when I consider creation, when I consider the magnitude of the power of God, when I stand in front of a rock granite face like El Capitan, or when I swim in the ocean and I feel the power of a wave, or when I hold a newborn baby and I consider its intricacies, I'm struck with a sense of my own insignificance. I am small. I am weak. My life is short. And quite frankly, I could disappear and the universe would not skip a beat. David's a shepherd out there. Maybe he's shepherding sheep, or maybe he's, as a king, just getting away and he's looking up at the stars. By the way, I think that there is something good for the soul about getting out in nature for this reason. You know, when you're in a city, you're just constantly looking at things man has made, and you could be tempted to think a lot about man. But when you get out in nature and you just look at what God has made, you start to feel the sense of God's greatness and our own insignificance. It's humbling. It's humbling to consider that there are more stars in the galaxies than there are sands on the beaches of Earth. Of Earth. And you go to the beach and just grab a handful of sand. It's like, I don't even know how many... I mean, who could count the sand of the beach? I mean, there is just innumerable. And yet we, we believe by our best estimates that there are more stars in the galaxies than there are grains of sand. And yet, when we think of how small we are, we have a sense of our own insignificance. See, the world is trying to puff you up, brothers and sisters. And when you get puffed up, you don't care about God's commands. You don't want to hold the tablets and stand on the rock and behold the glory. You just want to do what you want to do. And David's saying, but it, but if you'll consider, if you'll consider the stars, if you consider 
God's power and his majesty and his glory and your own relative insignificance, you will decrease and he will increase. And what happens in your heart when that happens is strong affections for God rooted in Scripture. It's worship. James 4.14 says, you don't even know what your life will be tomorrow. Life is a vapor. James says, you are a mist that appears for a short time and then disappears. You are a mist that appears for a short time and then disappears. We are, in our frailty, in our size and in our stature and in our power, insignificant. So I think the psalm invites us to ponder that. Because when you ponder that and you allow yourself to come to reality with who you are in light of who God is and who you are in light of creation and in light of all that God has done, you are humbled, you are broken, you feel small, you feel weak, you feel as you are. And what will come out of a Christian at that point, what will come out of a Christian at that point is worship. When we consider God's glory and what God has made, when we ponder our life, our shortness, the brevity of it, this will lead you to praise. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is you. I want to worship. I'm ready to worship. Well, we also, number three, we wonder at God's mercy. We wonder at God's mercy. We should celebrate God's glory. We should ponder our own insignificance. We should also wonder at God's mercy. While we are small and insignificant and unworthy, we are not worthless. We are unworthy, but we are not worthless. Notice what David goes on to say in verse 5. You have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowns him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. David is inviting us to look back for a moment and to consider the Garden of Eden and to consider that God made man higher than the beasts but lower than himself and the angels. We as humans have this special place in creation where God has put something in you that is not in your dog and not in your cat and not in any animal in the zoo. He has given you his own image. Men and women equal image bearers bearing the image of God. You are more than a body. You are a soul that will never die. And so David says, when I think back of what God did when he created you, I am reminded of God's glory because even though we're small and frail and weak and insignificant and unworthy, we are not worthless because we are image bearers of this magnificent, majestic God. But there's a problem. We're also fallen. We sin. And sin corrupts all that beautiful story that is to be found in Genesis 1 and 2. 
Sin corrupts it. You might have seen or read the Lord of the Rings stories. Anybody? Okay. Well, one of the characters in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit is the character of Gollum. Smeagol. And Smeagol finds a ring. And he's a normal guy. He's out fishing one day and he finds a ring and he becomes possessed with the ring and he puts the ring on and the ring, long story short, drives him mad. And it takes him from being a, a human to being like an animal who makes these guttural noises like an animal that sounds to the ear like Gollum. So he goes from being Smeagol, which is a real name, to being Gollum, who's like an animal. Well, what transforms him from one to the other? It is the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin. Nebuchadnezzar is this way. You know, in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon, turns his back on God. And when Nebuchadnezzar builds his empire, listen to what he says in Daniel 4.30. Just listen to this. In light of what we've read in, 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 in Psalm 8, listen to what... Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence, but my, by my mighty power and my glory and my majesty? You can almost hear Smeagol's looking at the ring and saying, My kingdom. He goes crazy. Well, this is all of our story, brothers and sisters. Sin has messed everything up. You've taught VBS, not last year, but the year before. There was a song that the kids sang, and it's a great song, and the song goes like this. Sin messed everything up. And I heard that song, and I thought, amen to that. That's the truth. Sin messed everything up. It messes up marriages. Messes up kids. Messes up family vacations. Ever go on a family vacation, you're like, we're doing this fun thing, and we're fighting. What, what's going on? Sin messes up everything. And so we as humans have the ability to look at the mountains and we see God's glory in them and we read his word and we have the ability to respond by faith because of the Spirit's work in our hearts and we are able to comprehend and celebrate the glory of God and ponder our insignificance, but we are fallen humans. And so we need someone who's not a fallen human to fulfill for us what we were created to do. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 2. In the book, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. This is the only other verse we'll reference, so you won't be flipping around. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? For the Son of Man that you care for Him, you have made Him a little lower than the angels. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, if you want to worship, you've got to celebrate God's majesty and you've got to ponder your insignificance, but you have to wonder at God's mercy because what the writer of Hebrews is doing is taking us back to Psalm 8 and saying, this is what man was supposed to be and failed. And yet this is what Jesus is and succeeded. Where the first Adam became entranced by sin and insane in sin and fallen and dead and stuck in sin, the second Adam resisted temptation, is victorious, is glorious, and is all that we cannot be. And so when you think of what we're supposed to be and how we failed, you think of Christ and how he succeeded and how he totally glorifies the Father and your heart is drawn to Christ. That's what Hebrews is telling us to do. It's saying Psalm 8 exists to point us to Jesus. And when your heart is pointed to Jesus, you know what happens in you? Strong affections for God rooted in Scripture rooted in Christ, rooted in the rock, rooted in the revealed glory of God in the face of Christ. Step four. Repeat step one through three. It's like, you know, getting in shape. You know, oh, I got to get in shape. Oh, I got to eat better. I got to work out. Okay, I did that. What else do I do? Just keep doing it. See, David is saying, listen, being a Christian who lives in the joy of worship, it's not about attending the right conferences. Other conferences can be good. It's not about getting the lighting right, although I'm not against getting the lighting right. It's not about any of that. It's about waking up every day, celebrating who God is, and being realistic about who you are and being thankful for his grace, and looking to Christ, going to bed, and doing it over and over and over again. That's how we become worshipers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 8. I think about all the scribes that faithfully wrote down these words. Over so many years, your sovereign hand that has preserved this text, I'm speechless. I just say thank you. I say thank you for leading whoever wrote Hebrews to make this connection for us. I would have never made it. God, we thank you that you have given us instructions. Help us, God. Help us. Help us to be worshipers. We want to behold your glory. We want you to be worshipped in our homes, in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.